Luke and John give us uh, a very clear uh, and intimate picture of the life of Jesus Christ. Um, What we see and know about him uh, is that Jesus lives 30 years uh, as a blue-collar worker. Uh, Then he begins his public ministry. Uh, He teaches the gospel uh, of the coming kingdom. Uh, He teaches about care for the widow and the orphan. Uh, He taught about loving our fellow man. He talked about racial uh, unity. Uh, He helped the sick. Uh, He lived his life rejected and downtrodden. He was a model for honesty, integrity, selflessness, and self-control. Jesus suffered at the hands of evil people without cursing or hating them. And as a matter of fact, he asked for their forgiveness. And then he dies on the cross in our place for our sins. And his followers then reported that he was seen alive, resurrected from the grave. Jesus Christ is the most renowned figure in all of history. More songs have been written about Jesus than any other person. More books have been written about Jesus than any other person who's ever lived. More paintings, more poems, all that stuff. He is the most significant figure in all of history. That is Jesus Christ uh, who lived and died um, some 2,000 years ago. Now, let me ask you this question. Did Jesus waste his life? Did he waste his life? Now, uh, I'm assuming because uh, you woke up, uh, you got out of bed, uh, you took a shower, hopefully, and uh, you're here this morning, um, I'm assuming that by that reasoning that you would say, no, Jesus did not waste his life. I mean, I'm saying 99% of the people in the room at least would say, no, Jesus did not waste his life. As a matter of fact, we could probably go beyond these doors out into a non-Christian or non-churched world and ask people off the street, random people, hey, do you think Jesus wasted his life? And they would likely say, again, I'm, I'm gonna throw a number out there. You can disagree with me. I'm, probably 99% of people, again, would say, no, Jesus didn't waste his life. I mean, you think about the rest of the world religions. In in all world religions, Jesus is still revered. He's still respected. Now, we might all disagree on why he didn't waste his life. They might have a different opinion or you might have a different opinion, but, but people would say, no, Jesus did not waste his life. Now, let's ask this question then. Lots of questions. I, uh, I've answered that one. I, I agree. No, Jesus didn't waste his life. I'm going to ask a lot more questions. We're going to leave some of them kind of up in the air uh, until we move a little bit further in the sermon. But one of these questions you have to answer for yourself, but, but we're getting there. Okay, so did Jesus waste his life? No. What about his followers then? If Jesus' life was not a waste, what about people who live their life in such a way that is a response to the life of Christ. That that is essentially the Christian life. We believe that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, died the death that we should have died in our place for our sins. We're sinners, okay? I'm a sinner. If, If you want to come to a perfect church with a perfect pastor, you've come to the wrong place. We are sinners. I'm a sinner. What I need is for Jesus to die in my place for my sins, Now, what then the Christian does in response to the sacrifice of Christ is to live a life thinking and meditating on the gospel, okay, what he has done. Particularly, let's ask this question, because we've been studying so much at Acts, we've seen the Apostle Paul, okay, so 
So did Jesus waste his life? No, we don't think that is a wasted life. What about the apostle Paul? I mean, did, did he waste his life? We, we've been studying through the book of Acts and we've been, been seeing this really intimate portrait of, of what he's done, where he's gone, how he's lived. Um, he, he, he is essentially like a missionary on steroids, right? He, he's gone from place to place all over the Mediterranean, even made his way into modern day Europe, um, preaching, teaching, raising up leaders, planting churches. This guy has been shipwrecked, beaten. I mean, this guy has lived this incredible life like outside looking in. But if we adopt the modern concept that essentially life is about you being happy all the time, then we could look at the life of the Apostle Paul and say, maybe it is a wasted life because getting beaten and shipwrecked isn't really happy. So, so was his life a waste? Okay, if we're gonna answer that question, then here we would have to answer this question. What is a meaningful life? What, what really matters in life? If we're gonna look at the Apostle Paul's life and say, is that a wasted life? Then we must answer what really matters in life. I mean, what what really should we be living for? What is really important? Now, you guys still with me? Okay, good. Um, some of you said no, but that's okay. Here's the thing. Every single one of us has already answered that question. What really matters in life? You've already answered it. Whether, whether consciously or unconsciously, you have figured out your world system and you've already answered the question, what really matters? Here's how you answer that question. You answer that question by what you orient your life around or what you give your time, your talent, and your treasure to. Whatever it is that you are giving right now, your time, your talent, and your treasure to, that is what you believe is the most important thing in life, and that is what you are saying, this is what it means to live a valuable life, is to devote yourself to these things. Now, that's different for a lot of people in the room. Some people have said, you know what? Family is the most important thing and I will devote my whole life to my family. Other people have said, you know what? Uh, uh, getting uh, money and, and, and a bigger house and a bigger car and living comfortably, comfort is the most important thing to live for. So, so what really matters in life? Comfort. What re- how about this one? What really matters in life? Giving my children a better life than what I had. That's what really matters in life or gaining the acceptance of people, or being successful at at my job. Whether I get money or not, that's not important. What's important is for me to feel successful. And and, and so there's just a, there's a big long list of things that supposedly really matter in life. So what is most important in life? What really does matter? Here's an even more terrifying question. What if what I think really matters doesn't matter at all. That's a terrifying thought. What if what I think really matters and then I've oriented my whole life around this thing that I really think matters and then when it all comes down to it, when it comes to the end, I really realize that thing that I've lived my whole life for doesn't matter at all. That's a terrifying thought. So we're back to the question what really matters in life. And then, and then we would have to then ask the question, told you there's lots of questions. We would have to then ask the question, am I living for that? So, so what really matters 
And then am I living for that? Because um, we only get one life. You can't get a redo on today. Once today is done, it's done. Once this month is over, you can never get it back. Once the year is gone, once the decade is gone, you don't get a mulligan, you don't get a redo. Your whole life is moving towards an end. Either you will die or Jesus will return. Either way, we only get one life. And so how we live it and how we structure it really matters. So, so what does really matter in life? And, and am I living for that? So let's let those questions swirl around for a moment. Uh, we've been traveling through Acts. Um, here's what we've seen. This is, I'm, I'm gonna recap the whole book as fast as I can. Uh, and as many of you know, it's not gonna be very fast at all. Um, so, so we started in the book of Acts um, 42, 43 weeks ago, really long time ago. Um, so, so we've been taking a really, really long time to go through this book and here's what we've seen. Jesus Christ um, ha- has died and resurrected. And in the very beginning of Acts, he ascends into heaven uh, to be seated at the right hand of the Father where he is today, ruling and reigning the universe. Amen. Amen. And so from that point on, what happens is the disciples and his followers take the work that he began and carry it on. So uh, Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down uh, and empowers those believers to then go out and complete the works uh, that Jesus began to do. Uh, And so that goes throughout all of the Roman Empire and spreads throughout the whole world, this message of of the cross. Peter preaches, Stephen preaches, all this crazy stuff happens, miracles, fervent praying. Uh, We meet this guy named the Apostle Paul. The book then kind of begins to shift as, as the Apostle Paul kind of becomes the main focus of Acts towards the end and his missionary journeys. He travels all over the Mediterranean, like I said, even making it all the way into modern day Europe, preaching, teaching, raising up leaders, planting churches. Now, what we've seen over the last several weeks is that Paul has been arrested and he's been in jail and he's gone from this court to this court to this court giving a defense. He's basically been going around with no resolution. And where we find ourselves today is... He's been in jail for two years. Like the mighty missionary, like you can't tie me down. I've got to go preach. I've got to go do this. I've got to go train these leaders. I've got to go here. I've got to go there. I've got to get on this boat. I've got to... That guy has been in chains, in jail, now at this point in the story for two years. They've tried to come up with charges. Have any of them stuck? No. Um, He's been accused of this thing, of that thing, and no charges have stuck, yet he is still in jail. So he's stuck, yet we are at another hearing. That's where we're gonna be today. We're gonna find ourselves in yet another hearing, another court case, and he's gonna stand up and give yet another defense. He does not get released today. So so at the end of the sermon, it's not like, and Paul is released, da-da-da-da. Like we all, you know, clap and cheer, finally. No, he stays in jail today, still with no charges. This seems so repetitive. I mean, is anybody else getting bored of this? It's like, okay, here we are, another court case, another trial. It seems so redundant. So as I arrived at the text this week to see a similar scene, I thought, Holy Spirit, what are you doing? 
We've already heard his defense. We've already met characters just like this. Holy Spirit, uh, I know you are, you know, omnipotent and all-knowing, but can we move it along? So I asked, why does it have to end like this? Why doesn't, I mean, if God is all-powerful and can do anything he wants to, why is he letting one of his, like, dudes, right? The apostle Paul is like the dude. So why, why is he stuck in jail? Why doesn't, I mean, have we not already seen, uh, you know, God just show up and like gates miraculously open up and chains fall off and people just strut out of jail? Haven't we already seen that? Yes. Why is that not happening here? What is the point of all of this? Does this mean that the end of the life of the apostle Paul is totally pointless? He, he, he's not planting any more churches. He's not traveling around. He's not doing any of that. Was it all a waste? Was it all pointless? Now we're back to our question, what really matters in life? What's the most important thing? We're forced to ask this question when we look at the end of the life of the apostle Paul. We're in chapter 25. When we get to 26, he doesn't get released. When we get to chapter seven, he's still in jail. And chapter 28 is the very end of the book. And it reads, he lived there two years at his own expense, proclaiming the, okay, so, so the very end of Acts chapter 28, he's still in jail. We might be tempted to say, what a waste. Let's jump into our text. Verse 13 in chapter 25. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Okay, um, here we're introduced to three new characters. As we've been traveling through this book, we, we've seen a lot of people, we've met a lot of new people, and so here we have three new characters. We have Agrippa, Bernice, and Festus. Now, um, if you remember, last week we were introduced to a governor named Felix, okay, I'm probably gonna get these names confused, so if I do, just yell at me, I'll, I'll figure it out. Um, so we were introduced to Felix, who was an awful governor. Um, the, the whole community, uh, Jerusalem, everything w- was marked by, by violence and uprising, and it was not going well. So essentially, Felix gets fired, and the new guy, Portius, or you could pronounce it Porcicus Festus, if, I know we have a lot of uh, young pregnant ladies, if you're looking for a name, you know, uh, hey, you would be really unique if you chose that one. And um, so, so we meet uh, Festus who essentially comes in and takes over for Felix because he was doing a terrible job. So now he is the governor, okay? So that is Festus. Uh, we also meet in this text, King Agrippa, okay? This is Herod Agrippa II, okay? Now, he was called king, um, but he's the king sort of. He is a Jewish king under Roman rule. So, so he, you know, he's a king, but not really. Sure, he makes some important decisions, but ultimately he has to answer to Caesar. Okay, so he's king, but kind of king. Here's some things you need to know about Herod Agrippa II. He was the last of the royal line of the Herods. Herod I, his dad, because if he's Herod, this, you guys get it. Herod I uh, beheaded James and imprisoned Peter. 
this is the guy who allowed people to worship him and was struck dead in Acts chapter 12. You guys remember that part where, where he allowed people to worship him and, and like he fell down and the worms ate him? That was awesome. Uh, his uncle, <clears throat> not for him, his uncle uh, had beheaded John the baptizer uh, and his great, great grandfather uh, had been the one who had all of the male babies killed in Bethlehem because he had heard that a king was going to be born. Okay, that is the line of the Herods. These guys are not awesome to say the least. Okay, so we meet Festus, we meet Agrippa, we also meet in uh, verse 13, King uh, uh, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea. So uh, we meet uh, Bernice, uh, if that is your name. Uh, I apologize for what I'm about to say. Uh, Bernice, uh, she had previously been married, and history uh, tells us that she had several other lovers, uh, but when that relationship would be over uh, or would kind of fall apart, she would go back and live with King Agrippa, who was her brother. That's nasty. Um, history tells us, uh, so again, we're not just guessing here. History does show us and history does tell us that they likely did live an incestuous relationship. Uh, and yeah, so that, yeah. Okay, moving along. So don't name your kid that. Here we go. Verse 14. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. Okay, Felix was the other governor. He got fired. Festus coming in. Uh, he, he sits down at his desk, uh, and there's a case file on his desk. He opens it up. Boom. We, we got Paul. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. The condemnation of death is, is what they were asking. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make a defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered uh, the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evil as I had supposed. I mean, he's expecting, you know, this guy is awful, terrible. You know, he, he speeds through parking lots where children are. I mean, this guy is a terrible guy. I mean, we, we've got to do something about this, but, but no charges like that were brought up. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about, certain, uh, about a certain Jesus whom was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send uh, him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear from this man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. Okay, what's the problem? Here's the problem. Uh, again, Festus gets into town. He's the new governor. Um, he, he sits down at his desk, you know, arranges all of his papers. There is the, you know, the stack of files. He pulls off the first file. He opens it up. And there is this case of the undecided case of the apostle Paul. Okay, what are we going to do with this guy? Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, he gets a you know, knock at his door. Oh, hello, uh, you know, nice Jewish people. How can I help you? Uh, yes, we would like for you to kill Paul, please. Um, 
okay, uh, why? Uh, so they have this big trial and, and they bring up all of their accusations, which we've already heard. And do any of them stick? No. As a matter of fact, he says, I, I was really confused because it seems like they're just debating um, over, you know, stuff that doesn't really matter. I mean, it, it seems like details within their religion and, and him being a Roman doesn't really know about it, doesn't really care too much about it. Uh, again, he's, he's wanting to punish real criminals, not people who are in a theological debate. So the question is, why doesn't then Festus just do the right thing? Okay, he gets there, uh, opens up the case file, doesn't find any charges sticking. He, had the, they, he sits on the, the tribunal. He goes and sits in his big fancy chair. All right, tell me what this guy did. They tell him and he goes, whatever. Okay, case dismissed. Why doesn't Festus do that? Well, because of the political climate, because of what's happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a place under Roman occupation. There are soldiers marching the streets, okay? This is what's happening. So with a massive empire like the Roman Empire, when they come in to occupy a place, a territory, especially like Jerusalem, what they're wanting is for there to be peace and unity. So um, they were willing to, the Roman government was willing to pander to uh, the, the Jews and if they had ridiculous requests like, hey, you know, keep this guy in jail. He's awful. Why is he awful? Because we said so. And if, and if you don't like that, then, you know, we'll start a riot. And they're like, all right, fine. We'll keep him in jail. So Festus here is stuck. He can't let him go. Why? Because it would really make the Jews mad and he could potentially have a riot on his hands and he can't kill him. Why? Well, because it's against the law. He can't just go around killing people. Everybody knows that. So he's stuck. He, he's, he's got this problem. So here is what Paul does. Do you see that part uh, in verse 21 where he says this? But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor. Here's what Paul has done. Uh, he's been bounced from court to court to court. He's given his testimony again and again and again. Where is he getting? Nowhere. So because he is not getting a fair shake, here's what Paul does. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, in that time, that was a legal way to say, I'm not getting a fair shake in this court or any other court for that matter. Um, I want to go appeal my case in front of the man, okay, Caesar himself. Now, as a Roman citizen, he was allowed to do that. And anyone who was a Roman citizen, if they didn't feel like they were getting a fair trial, they were allowed to go do that, to, to appeal their case before Caesar. So that's what the Apostle Paul does, okay? Moving along, 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was uh, being brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he, uh, he himself appeared to, uh, has appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing to write definite to write in to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner uh, not to indicate the charges against him. Okay, so 
Here's what happens. Uh, Festus is very confused about what to do. Um, So there's King Agrippa who comes in town with Bernice, his sister, um, and they come in town basically to pay a courtesy visit to the new governor. Hello, new governor, very nice to meet you. I'm King Agrippa, this is Bernice, you know, whatever. So they're sitting there having lunch and, and, and Festus likely said, I, I got this problem, you're, you're a Jewish guy, I'm a Roman guy, you, would, you know about Jewish things. I've got this case and I can't figure out what to do with it. So would you, he says, absolutely, I'd love to help you. Let me hear from this guy, okay? So that's what they do. They, they set up uh, the, the, big, the big court case and he goes in uh, to basically hear uh, what this guy has to say. And here is Festus' big problem. If he has appealed to Caesar, he's got to do, uh, you know, the, the TPS report. You know, he's got he's to fill in the paperwork to send with Paul to the emperor. And it, you know, it's like, uh, dear emperor, here is Paul. He is not liked by a lot of people. And here is his case, sincerely, Festus. You know, he, he can't send that paper to the emperor. I mean, he's, he's got to have something to write down on his report. And that's the big problem. So he, uh, King Agrippa, again, you're a Jewish guy. You know about Jewish things. Could you help me out uh, with my TPS report? Okay, that's essentially what's happening here in this case. Now, look back at verse 23. Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Hmm. Okay. Now, I I want us to kind of in our mind get this picture in our head. I I want you to see this scene. I I want you to, to, to kind of smell the, the, the auditorium hall and, and envision everything that's happening. This word um, pomp essentially means a splendid display of great ceremony. A splendid, that's what that word means, a splendid display of great ceremony. You know that, that song, Pomp and Circumstance? That's the, the song they play at, at graduations, right? The, where the, you know, everyone's all dressed up and they come marching in in this great you know, uh, display. So here, here is what's happening. There's a, there's a grand audience hall, okay? So they enter the great hall with its grand pillars and all the amenities available for the day. Both Agrippa and Bernice wearing their royal purple robes and golden crowns striding hand in hand like they own the planet. Right with them are the Roman soldiers, armors gleaming with light, helmets and swords clanking as they march, trumpeters and drummers sounding their entrance, and following behind them all kinds of important people. You getting the scene now? I mean, here they come, marching through town, headed on the way to the great hall, just wearing the finest clothes, you know, just kind of, you know, waving at people, you know, look at the peasants, hi, you know, hello, how are you? <laughs> you know, as, as, they, as they go on their way to this great audience hall, right with them would have been Festus, and he would have been dressed in a red governor's robe, wearing the finest garb of the day, and there they all are, are seated in a great place of prominence with all the important people, and, and, and people have gathered there to hear the Apostle Paul give his defense yet one more time. Okay, stage is set. Enter the Apostle Paul. Now, here's what church history tells us about the Apostle Paul. Uh, He was short. 
okay? He's a small framed short man, don't hate. He is balding, church history tells us, okay? He is balding on top. Um, the one historian wrote this about him. Um, he was beetle-browed and bandy-legged. What does that mean? Uh, it means that he had big, bushy eyebrows that connected in the middle. Dude, he was unibrow, okay? He had a big, crooked nose, and bandy-legged means it, he walked like he had just stepped off a horse. And where has he been for the last two years? In jail. Wearing his two-year-old prisoner's tunic, unkempt, unwashed, beetle-browed, bandy-legged, hooked nose, small frame, balding man steps into that place. Now, let's imagine we're sitting there and you're, you're looking at this scene and this question comes in your mind. Who's the most important person in the room? Who is living a life that is most significant? Who in this room right here, right now, looking at the king, looking at the governor, looking at all the soldiers and all the important people and looking at this worthless, nothing prisoner, who is living a life that really matters? What would you be forced to think? Your brain would say, the king, I mean, he's important. He makes all kinds of important decisions. People look up to him. I mean, he, he's got all of the things that, I mean, he, he's got wealth, he's got power, he's got an awesome robe. I mean, what more could you ask for? He's the king. And there's Festus. I mean, he's the governor. He's been appointed. You know, he, he's got money. He's got power. He's got fame. He's got everything that the world is essentially crying out for, seeking to say, this is what it means to live a life of meaning and of worth is not to be a servant, but to to be served. And that's exactly, I mean, of course these guys live significant lives. That's why the soldiers are there to protect their life because their life is so meaningful. And look at the apostle Paul. I mean, he, his life means nothing. He's living a totally worthless life, stuck in jail for the last two years, going from court to court, you know, hearing to hearing, giving the same old defense, doing the same old thing, stuck in the same old rut. I mean, that is totally pointless, totally worth it. Who wants to live a life like that? his life is insignificant. You might be tempted to think if you were sitting there in that hearing on that day when Bernice and Agrippa and Festus enter the hall with great pomp. Or was it a waste? What if this scene, the scene that we've just painted, with, with the auditorium, with the soldiers, with all the important people, with, with the, the beetle-browed, bandy-legged, hooked-nosed, hasn't taken a shower in two years, Apostle Paul. What if that scene is actually flipped on its head and Paul is the one who is living a life that really matters? Here's what you need to know about history, okay? The fun history fact. Um, in a few years, from this point on, in 70 AD, here's what happens. There is a massive Jewish revolt. 
in that Jewish revolt, the Romans come in to crush that revolt. They end up destroying the temple. It's, it's a big bloody scene. Now, um, Agrippa, does he fight with his countrymen or does he fight with Rome? He fights with Rome. He abandons his countrymen and fights for Rome. That, that's what he decides to do, the, the big, fantastic Agrippa. Um, and what eventually happens to him is he goes back to Rome and he stays there living with his sister um, until his life is over. That's what happens to King Agrippa. And what happens to the Roman Empire? Is it still around today? The kingdom that he fought for is no more. What about the kingdom the apostle Paul fought for? I mean, if, if you were to like, be able to hit the pause button and enter into that scene and, and strut over to King Agrippa, and you know, please don't kill me, Mr. Soldiers, I have a question. Uh, King Agrippa, what is a meaningful life? What, I mean, what are you living for? What's the purpose of it all? How should I, you know, he, he might say, well, uh, you know, you should live for comfort and success and power and all of these things. These are the things that really matter. That's what it means to live a meaningful life is to have comfort, success, and power. Don't you see? And to, to stand for government structures that help people's lives. The problem is all of that is for nothing because the Roman Empire eventually is destroyed and goes away. And then there is the Apostle Paul who is actually living the life that means something that matters because the kingdom that he fought for is eternal, will last forever. So now we ask, who had the most significant and important life? Let's go ahead and answer the question, okay? Here's what really matters in life, and this will come up on the screen. I encourage you to write it down. What really matters in life? Again, I'm I'm tr this is a, do you see how big this question is? Like this is a massive question that, that, that I'm trying to answer. And listen, it, th this isn't coming from me. I, I'm not standing on my authority. I'm standing on the authority of the word of God. And I'm about to tell you what really matters in life. Here it is. Putting the infinite value of Christ on display for the world to see is what really matters in life. Putting the infinite value. The, how, how valuable is Christ? Infinitely. Putting the infinite value of Christ on display for the world to see. As the apostle Paul was being bounced from court to court to court, from this hearing to that hearing, going here, going there, in chains, in rags, what does he do every time he steps to the stage? In chapter 26, he, he's given the opportunity. King Agrippa says, all right, Paul, Go. What does he do? He puts on display the infinite value of Christ. That's what he does. Listen, we, we are so tempted to think that other things are important. We, we might look at the upcoming election and say, oh man, this is the, that, the upcoming election is the most important thing. Absolutely not. One day, there will be no more presidents. There will be no more countries. There will be one king and one kingdom. It is the most important thing in all of life. It is what it means to live a life that really matters. That is showing the value of Christ. W simply stated, what am I supposed to do with my life? 
What are you supposed to do with your life? You only got one. What are you supposed to do? Glorify God. What brings God glory? Well, showing off how valuable he is. Right? I got one life. What am I supposed to do? Glorify God. How do I glorify God? Show off how valuable he is. That's what brings him glory. What do I mean? Here's a great quote from one of my favorite preachers and pastors, John Piper. Here's what he has to say. The supreme value of Christ is displayed when you treasure him above all earthly things and all other earthly persons. The treasuring of him above all earthly things and persons is most clearly seen in what you are gladly willing to risk or to sacrifice in order to enjoy more of him. That's awesome. That's awesome. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says it in Philippians chapter three, verse eight. That's how John Piper said it. How does the Apostle Paul say it? He says it this way. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Just let's stop right there for a second. I count everything. Everything, Paul, that's, that language seems a bit strong. You can't mean everything. You can't mean more than your family, right? I mean, come on, we're down here in the South. Everybody knows family is the most important thing, isn't it? Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. More than success, more than comfort, more than money, more than being liked by people, more than feeling good about yourself, Paul, everything. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Whoa, 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 you're not supposed to suffer. That's not what this life is about, is it? This life is about making you the most comfortable and most happy you could possibly be. That's a life that really matters, isn't it? Not to Paul. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Nothing in order that I may gain what's the most valuable thing to him? Christ. Christ, Jesus, having, knowing, being with him, being loved by him, that's more valuable to him. Putting his infinite value on display for the world to see was the most important thing. If you were to walk into that hall on that day with all of the pomp surrounding Paul and say, Paul, do you think this is a total waste? No, not for one second is this a waste. That's what he would say. So that's the principle how do we put his infinite value on display? What is, what's the practical? The, the principle is a life full of meaning, a meaningful life puts Christ's infinite value on display, okay? Okay, so how do I do that? Number one, these will come up on the screen. I am constantly investing in our relationship. 
if I am going to put on display the infinite value of Christ, then I'm constantly investing in my relationship with Christ because it's valuable. How, how do you show that your spouse is valuable to you? Well, you drop what you're doing and spend time with them. That shows that they're valuable. It, it shows that they're more valuable than you know, whatever it is that you were doing before, your hobbies or whatever. When, when you drop doing that to be with them, it says this one has greater value. My spouse has greater value than these things, than, than my hobby or taking a nap or whatever, okay? So spending time with your spouse shows they have value. Therefore, investing in your relationship with Christ shows his infinite value. How do we invest in our relationship with Christ? Well, uh, that comes through reading his word. Reading his word. There, there are so many ways, so many outlets that we have to connect to God's word. We, we can get it right on our phones. I, I have my phone read the Bible to me. That's how lazy I am. But, it, but at least, but at least I'm, I'm getting in the word and, and I encourage you to do that. If you're gonna invest in your relationship with Jesus, you have to know who he is and what he's like, meaning you have to get into his word. You, you, you have to worship him. You have to sing to him. You have to have a relationship with him. So, so to, to put his value on display means that I'm, I'm always thinking about investing in my relationship with him. It means I, I, I'm saying, you know what, having a quiet time uh, where, where it's, it's just me and the Lord, where, where I put the whole world on pause, that is showing Christ's value over everything the world has to offer. When I close my laptop and shut down Facebook, when I turn off Netflix, when I put my phone uh, on airplane mode, or this is crazy, like turn it off. You know, they have those. Like there's a button right here. It, it cuts it right off and no one can call you and you can't call anyone. I, it's ingenious technology, but they, they made that button on there for you turning that off and, and putting the whole world on pause. I mean, you, right now, maybe some of you think, well, who has time for that? I mean, I've got to do this and that. And, and by doing so, by putting the whole world on pause, it's showing how valuable he is. It's showing Christ is more valuable than my checklist of things to do and I, all these things I have to get done and the emails that I have to send out. And you know, if I don't comment on this person's post on Facebook, they'll just be so mad at me and that can wait. And it shows the value of Christ when you invest in your relationship with him. Number two, I make his people a priority. If I want to put Christ's value on display, his infinite value on display to the world, then I would care about the things that Jesus cares about. For whom did Christ come to die? His church. That's how much he values his people and his church, that he would die for them. So when I value time with his people, it's showing how valuable Christ is. That means that I'm regularly attending Sunday morning. I'm sitting under gospel preaching with God's people. I'm, he is so valuable, I'm willing to press pause on everything else 
I'm willing to try to at least get a decent night's sleep on you know, Saturday so I can wake up and be here. It means that I don't plan anything. I don't schedule anything. Anything comes up on Sunday morning, I say no. And what that does is it puts the value of Christ on display over everything else that might come in. No, I don't do that. I don't do that on Sunday. I don't work on Sunday morning. I don't, I don't garden on Sunday morning. Uh, I don't play hopscotch on Sunday morning. I don't, what do I do on Sunday morning? I go be with God's people. That is showing the value of Christ. It, it's saying I'm gonna be connected to a community group on a weeknight or on a Saturday. We, we have community groups here. I mean, again, who has time for that with all the other stuff we have to do? Again, by saying, I'm going to connect with God's people and I'm gonna say no to all of these things so I can say yes to connecting with God's people, that shows how valuable he is. Number three, I am dedicated to his mission. Take a look at Acts chapter 26, verses 19 through 20. Paul is standing there in that hall, and King Agrippa says, All right, Paul, have at it. He launches into his defense, he launches into his testimony. He he tells about the the road to Damascus where Jesus showed up and in a bright blinding light knocks him off of his horse and, and gives him a mission, gives him a command. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and all throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul, what's your mission? To go to the Gentiles, to go to Jerusalem, to go all throughout, to go everywhere and tell people to repent Um, and keep in deeds following with their repentance. That's my mission, to make disciples. That is Paul's mission. That's what Paul does. It shows the infinite value of Christ by being on his mission. And Paul here says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Friends, you may have not got a heavenly vision. I know I have not received a heavenly vision, but I have received a great commission which is go therefore into all the nations, make disciples, teaching them to obey all the things I have said. That, and, and lo, I'll be with you even till the end of the age. That is the great commission. Go make disciples and baptize them. That's what we are all called to do. We do that through inviting people to church. We do that through sharing our faith. We do that through giving and funding local churches so that the gospel goes out. That's the mission, to serve, to love, to proclaim. And by living a life like that, it shows the value of Christ. Now listen, when you do that, it's so funny. If you read chapter 26, that's your homework. Read chapter 26. In the middle of all of that, Festus stands up and says, Paul, your great learning has made you crazy. He tells him he's insane. When you live a life that ultimately puts Christ's value on display, listen, people are gonna say you're crazy. But who's really crazy? Christians who put Jesus on display as as the greatest value, our source of true joy, happiness, and treasure, or the world who lives for themselves? Who's really crazy? So, what really matters in life 
Are you living life for comfort? Are you living life for success? Are you living life only for your family? Are you living life only for the approval of people? Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12, 15 through 21. Luke 12, 15 through 21. Here's what it says. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. What a, what a pointless life this man had. To make himself rich. Now again, some of you, that might not be your thing, but again, you're making yourself rich um, through devoting your life to comfort and to yourself and to your job and, and, and to the multitude of hobbies and all of the other stuff that's out there instead of making yourself rich towards God. Jesus says, that's foolish. That's a foolish thing to do because you're gonna die one day and or Jesus will come back. One of those two things is happening. Every single one of us is on a trajectory to the end. We're, we're moving towards a destination, which is it's gonna be over. Now, um, I have, during this sermon, endeavored to answer the question, what really matters in life? That is a massive question. It's, it's huge. And our answer has been, obviously putting the infinite value of Christ on display for the world. But I think maybe some would be tempted to say, you know what, that may be what really matters for you in life, but someone else could answer that question in a different way, and if that made them happy, then that's fine. I mean, wouldn't you, I mean, I might be tempted to answer it. I mean, that sounds reasonable. If, if, you know, Christianity is your thing and it's what makes you happy and floats your boat and all that kind of stuff, you know, what, what's the most important thing in life? If you answer Christianity, if you answer putting Jesus' infinite value on display for the world, see, great, I answer it differently and, and we both can be just fine. Well, here's why I would say that is untrue. If the resurrection is true, there is only one answer. Here's a great line from a poem written by C.T. Studd. He says this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If there is one coming king and one coming kingdom, you must answer the question that way. 
you must answer. What's the most important thing? Well, glorifying that king because he's coming and building his kingdom because that's the only thing that's gonna last forever. So you can try to answer it in any different way that you want to, but ultimately anything that you put in that answer box will be put on the ash heap of insignificance once it's all wiped away and Jesus institutes his forever kingdom and forever reign. So, so therefore, you can only answer the question that way, putting Jesus' infinite dis- value on display for the world. See, you can only answer it that way if the resurrection is true. So if the resurrection is true, therefore, the only way that we should live our lives is totally, completely devoted to Jesus Christ. If the resurrection is not true, then necessarily go out and do whatever makes you happy. Friends, I'll tell you this. There is an empty tomb. They, they went there that day and the tomb was empty. It was then verified by over 500 witnesses that Jesus Christ is alive. And if he is alive, then, it, it, here, here's what Romans says. If he has resurrected, then I will be united in a resurrection, what? Like his That means if Jesus is alive, then one day he's gonna come back and he's gonna call his church to himself and everything that is not done for him and for his kingdom will be wiped away and be meaningless and mean nothing. So therefore, what do I do today? I live my whole life for him. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let me pray. Father, I pray for a radical devotion to putting your infinite value on display for the world to see. I pray that we would sacrifice greatly for you and for your kingdom and for your gospel expansion because the greater that we sacrifice here in this life shows how valuable you really are. As we give away our time, as we give away our comfort, as we give away our finances, as we give away of ourselves, we're showing you're worth it, you're worth it, you're worth it. We're showing that the work that you did on the cross to save us and your person and work and having a relationship with you is more infinitely more valuable than anything this world would have to offer. I pray now for a church full of people who have decided, who have said, if the resurrection is true, the only rational and reasonable way to live would be totally devoted to Christ. I pray now that that would be our resolve and that would be this church's heart's song. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.